my cue, everyone. You are listening to Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media, monitoring the innovation impulse from idea to business model and emerging best practices. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer, co-founder, and co-host of the show. And joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, at FS Goldstein on Twitter, a principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hi, Fred. Glad to have you in the seat today. Thank you, Greg. Happy to be here. How are you doing today? Doing great. Sunny, mild weather, San Diego. Life is good. So for those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a subject matter expert with deep roots in the hospital health plan, health and wellness and prevention space from disease management to population health management. Fred is a board member and past chair of the Population Health Alliance, also known as PHA, having served most recently as its executive director and now captains the ship at Accountable Health LLC, a co-sponsor of this broadcast. I am a seasoned healthcare executive, having provided leadership and consulting support for hospitals, health systems, incapitated medical groups, IPAs, MSOs, and several managed care joint ventures, including PHOs, and the publisher of ACOWatch.com, and founder CEO of HealthInnovationMedia.com, principally known on Twitter as Two Health Guru, with an aggregate following of over 25,000. And today, we are previewing our series on ACOs and population health. We'll provide an overview and the quest towards the triple aim and try to unbundle some of its many moving parts. So with that as an intro, Fred, over to you. Set some global context here. Let's start with a basic definition of population health, perhaps tethering to the PHA framework for population health management as a starting point. Then let's pivot to the role of ACOs but first, take us through the definition of an accountable care organization, including the various types of ACOs we'll be hearing from later this month. Thanks so much for that kind introduction, Greg. Uh, fantastic to be here. And I think this is going to be a really interesting month as we talk to some key leaders in ACOs, which really came about because of the Affordable Care Act. As, as that was put in place, obviously, the government was looking for mechanisms to move the healthcare system in a way that would achieve the triple aim. And if you think about the triple aim being improving the patient experience of care, improving the health of populations, and reducing the per capita cost of health care, and you put that out there and say, okay, this is a great goal, but how do we ultimately deliver that? What sorts of systems do we need to create to try and reach those three very large, substantial goals? And so out of that also became this legislation that allowed for what are called accountable care organizations. And if you think about an accountable care organization, really from the original work by Kelly Devers and uh, Robert Berenson in 2009, it's a system of providers and hospitals that have the ability to, to provide and manage with patients the continuum of care across different institutional settings, including at least ambulatory and inpatient hospital care and possibly post-acute care. Second, the capability of prospectively planning budgets and resource needs. And third, the sufficient size to support comprehensive, valid, and reliable performance measures. So they really laid out in 2009 this structure that has now blossomed into what we see with the multitude of ACOs out there in the community. And when, let me now sort of tie this into population health. And if you, 
if you look at population health from the Population Health Alliance framework, which is one of the key features of these accountable care organizations, the second one talking about being able to um, improve the health of populations, population health is really a way to look at an entire grouping of individuals, your community, those in your health system, or perhaps those in your practice, from those who are extremely healthy to those who are near end of life and determine who they as an individual are, what they potentially need in terms of services, both from a care and a health perspective, and then provide those services through and intervene in various ways to help them either improve or maintain their health. And at the end of that, you want to measure those results and feed that back in and say, did we on an aggregate level move the health of this population? Whether we're looking at that from a single disease state like persons with diabetes, all the way up to a city state or even the country, did we improve its overall health? So that's one of the goals of the triple aim. The Population Health Alliance has an excellent framework that can be used to structure these types of programs. And if people haven't looked at those, they really should go to populationhealthalliance.org and uh, grab the outcomes guidelines version five. Um, and they'll get that information. And so as that then grew, Greg, we came up with these various programs that CMS pushed out to launch ACOs. The first being the Pioneer Program that was targeted towards organizations that had sufficient, what they believed, experience in managing groups and taking risk through the Medicare Shared Savings Programs ultimately now up into the next gen ACO that they've recently announced they've launched. And each of these is sort of a step in the direction of moving risk down to the provider, of making them more responsible for the outcomes and switching from a fee-for-service volume-based system to a value-based system. And of course, uh, this is the new lexicon. Everyone's talking about uh, value-based healthcare. And inside of that is code for things like uh, global or bud, uh, bundled payment, uh, service line specific bundled payment, cancer, orthopedics, cardiac, so on and so forth. But also case rates and uh, prepayment or full capitation, partial, i.e. Uh, professional, possibly ancillary and then global, including hospital and all institutional or uh, continuum of care services. So, you know, one can argue that the uh, these are two ways of talking about the same thing. Uh, for instance, anyone who is mindful of a population like an HMO that has members, Kaiser as an example, they are focused on the health and well-being of their members by definition, population health, no? That's correct. And, you, and your discussion of the payment structures is, is, was right on target. You essentially have this movement from fee-for-service to pay-for-performance, where we're seeing that now in many of these shared savings programs where you've got a doctor getting extra bonuses for some sort of performance outcomes up to shared savings, where they're sharing in the savings, then bundled payments, finally to full-risk capitation. And so within those, you then have various types of ACOs, as we've talked about before. Um, you have provider-led ACOs. We have the hospital-sponsored ACOs, plan-enabled ACOs, and also these others that have been set up. And 
they're all kind of vying for which model might be the best. We've seen some significant growth, obviously, in provider, um, the provider-led, physician-led ACOs, and they're now, according to some work done in 2015, reported by Unhealth Affairs, about 260 of those out there. There are about 238 hospital-sponsored um, ACOs and about 55 health plan-enabled and 53 other types of ACOs. So we're really seeing the provider community step out with these. And then the question becomes, are we seeing variations in these models? You know, obviously a place like Kaiser has a ton of experience managing populations. They're in essence, a combo model, a health plan and a provider plan in one, which is what I think a lot of providers are starting to consider. Do they move that route? So of course, healthcare is all healthcare is local and some argue hyper-local. Uh, inside a particular market, you have politics and characteristics that vary uh, from hospital to hospital, from specialty to specialty, and from physician to physician inside a medical group and certainly an IPA or emerging ACO. But even with, with all of the, you know, the, uh, uh, the criticism, let, let me step back. The, the Affordable Care Act was passed in March of 2010. Uh, the first rule that came out for ACOs, I think, was released sometime late 2011. There was, you know, all sorts of feedback from the industry, and the final rule can't exact. I don't remember exactly when that came out, but I think we're now in the second iteration of the final rule around. Um, the Medicare shared the uh, ACO program, the predominant body of which is expressed in the Medicare shared savings programs in terms of participants. And the, the word on the street is the incentives inside the Medicare shared savings programs are so light that they don't provide a sufficient motivation to really drive the innovation and the change that the program needs writ large to have the impact it's expected to hack happen. In fact, there may be even some conflicting incentives here with the hospital readmission program. So inside of these models and types, what's going on here with these potentially conflicting incentives? Yeah, I think really, as you point out, the Medicare shared savings program um, has not reached its full uh, potential as people would have hoped for. I think the most recent data shows that only 53 of the 220 programs will receive payments for shared savings, even though many of these organizations have invested a lot of money to get to where they're at. Um, and it begs the question, is there enough of an incentive there, as you point out, to move behavior? And we're trying to, we're really looking at behavior in two ways. One is the physician behavior and how they manage their, their patient panels. And the second is because we have health systems or hospitals in some of these hospital behavior. So I think what you're starting to see is that the physician led programs, which seem to have been showing better results, are easier to move that behavior because the bonuses are more relevant to the provider. The amount able to be received is higher on a relative value than it would be to a hospital. And hospitals really have this huge infrastructure and have a difficult time if they've got to accept fewer inpatient admissions or bed days to support that infrastructure. So we may be seeing this split and that may be why providers are 
provider led systems are better able to to show some savings because they're not necessarily thinking about this huge overhead if because they don't have it. Right, I I've seen some some pretty uh clear argument in favor of the numbers are tepid, the incentives are tepid. This isn't going to work. Perhaps the most vocal advocate of too little too late as in the ACOs are HMO light too little too late is Jeff Goldsmith who's been pretty clear and then he has a whole argument around integrated delivery systems particularly on the nonprofit side and whether they're actually uh delivering the results they're promising in terms of community benefit but even with those uh um uh, active criticism against both the Affordable Care Act and ACOs in particular they're growing at a rather rapid rate to the surprise of many in fact I think the latest numbers I've seen on Medicare uh beneficiary totals are somewhere in the 50 million plus mark and right now according to some of the estimates there are almost 24 million lives in 50 states participating in the uh um the Medicare shared savings program that that says something no it it really does and I think what you're seeing is nobody wants to be left behind um if if this is what everybody says this is the solution run run to the light and just hope it's not an oncoming train <laughs> and <Run> uh <laughs> i think good. what's happened is we're, we're seeing some of that that yeah. everybody's rushing out there but the the results are a little bit behind what's happening in the marketplace and the question is is that just a timing issue and we're going to see better results in the future or is this structure and the particular the incentives too light i know we heard both from um rushika last month and and roy hinman in in there when they guested on our show both of them said look you just got to take the dive throw out that whole fee for service side of our business and this is how you can effectively manage populations and reduce costs and achieve the claim and they're showing it so um while providers are hesitant to take that step given some of the early results it might be that you can't have as we've talked about before uh, one foot in each canoe and hope to effectively sail through this uh transition right and i think it's also important for people especially the critics uh is number 1 the healthcare economy now one out of every $5 spent in the united states is a titanic beyond belief in terms of scale and proportion and complexity and what we have in the aggregate invented the healthcare stakeholders payers providers third parties regulators overseers consumers patients probably less so patients i don't think we've necessarily created the complexity we've created a beast and it isn't going to change overnight and the political process here particularly as the aca came together and ultimately was pushed over into the end zone by a straight party line vote when the democrats were the majority party in the senate and the house um is a compromise on a compromise that has roots in the heritage foundations plan for managed competition okay somehow forgotten in all this mix but very complex lots of moving parts the accountable care organization is probably the principal workhorse in the implementation of this ACA vision 
yet it's flawed in many ways because of the art of what's politically possible. Because back in the day, had, you know, uh, what's his name? The Fuhrer, uh, as some have said, you know, government takeover, Obama's taking away our freedoms, you can steal our guns and force government health care down our throats. Had he stood up and said, okay, guys, here's the deal. We've talked long enough. <laughs> the time for talking is over. Here it is. Henceforth and herewith, the plan for Medicare in the United States of America is we're just going to build out the Kaiser model. All right. And here's the timeline of that. You know, you know, he, he would have, you know, let just imagine, you know, what that would have done. But so we went with what's politically palatable. And you supplied me with a awesome piece out of the Annals of Family Medicine titled Salary and Quality Compensation for Salary and Quality Compensation for Physician Practices Participating in ACOs by um, Andrew Ryan and Stephen Shortell from my alma mater, Berkeley. And the conclusion is this, this is great. Although practices in ACOs provide higher compensation for quality compared with practices at large, they provide a similar mix of compensation based on productivity and salary. Incentives for ACOs may not be sufficiently strong to encourage practices to change physician compensation policies for better patient experience improve population health and lower per capita cost. So what does that tell us? <laughs> I think that that's fantastic. So, so you're right. Let's, how do we move to Titanic? Well, we tried this model. It's not enough. Well, let's get out a bigger stick. So the next, in, in a sense, because you really are trying to fix this system. So, so what do they do? Well, we're going to move to 50. Our goal is to move to 50% value-based reimbursement by 2018. You know, let's let's run from that fee for service as quickly as we think we can do it, which which is in essence a, a way to say, guys, this isn't quite pulling it off. We're gonna we're gonna add some more teeth to this and try to get you to take that jump and go to accepting, you know, two sided risk models and, and things like that over the majority of your of your clinical practice or health system operations, et cetera. And then once you've done that you'll suddenly see that it makes sense for you to reduce those areas that the IOM talks about, waste, fraud, and abuse within the system in the 30% and drop the hospitalization rates, figure out how to keep people out of the ERs and and create, at the end, a better health system. Is that going to happen? I think, Greg, you've talked about, Does can, can HHS get that done by 2018? Good question. Yeah, it's like uh, issuing a memo from corporate, you know, how often do those things succeed? So lots bigger scale and complexity here. But this, you know, reminds me of this. Uh, here's a uh, uh, enterprising uh, uh, day type ACO management company called ACO Advisors. And I came across their case for ACO participation, which is something that we haven't touched on but is a big part of why this time might be different and perhaps medicare taking a position about migrating of relationships into quality-based contracts this time might actually work and that is the repeal of the sgr and here i just want to read this directly why an aco may be the next best step for you the shifting sands of the medical landscape quote 
80% of physicians are still paid mostly on a fee-for-service basis. But this will not last long. The repeal of the sustainable growth rate law in April of 2014 changes how physicians will be paid. Previously under SGR, Medicare's budget linked its spending to economic growth. However, once healthcare costs began rising faster than the growth of the economy, physicians were at continual risk of reimbursement cuts, aka the so-called doc fixes. For over a decade, Congress passed temporary fixes to keep reimbursement rates steady. The new legislation replaces the need for repeated fixes with a system that eventually, eventually <laughs> ties physician <laughs> income to participation in payment models based on value. You know, so here we go, this incrementalism, right, in a context of an environment that ain't the 80s or 90s anymore. You know, uh, 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 nations are at risk of, of healthcare costs, not just companies. Yeah, it's uh, it's all it's all coalescing, and the question is, can you move the single largest industry in the United States? And I I think there's some real fear there if you think think about it from a hospital perspective, and if you actually go in there and cut admissions, ER visits, inappropriate utilization of high cost technologies, if we create a healthier population that has less heart disease, less type 2 diabetes, less obesity, and cut those huge pieces out of the system, how many employees, how many housekeepers, nurses, doctors, do you have to cut out of your workforce to, to take that 30% or 20% reduction in your inpatient utilization. People talk about the fact that, oh, maybe they'll get jobs in the population health industry and be out there in other ways in the community. But at the end of the day, the goal really is to reduce costs and, and maintain quality. And to do that, you've got to take stuff out of the system. And what we're finding is a system that finds it difficult to do that, obviously, because we've all of us in the system have essentially grown up making money in the system. Yeah, reduce costs, uh, improve quality, and and by implication, improve and increase access. <laughs> so, <laughs> when when it was fee for service Yahoo Medicine, yeah, you could expand access because you're being paid on a production basis. Well, if that pie's shrinking, but you need to expand additional access. Uh, well, then there's a role for telehealth, telemedicine, virtual care, all this other stuff. All these promising opportunities on the horizon that have yet to really prove they can focus on a total cost of care reduction while improving quality and access and experience. So, you know, it's easy to count ACOs, at least those in the Medicare and Medicaid space that are being reported on a regular basis by CMS. But uh, here's a secondary um, data point that uh, talks about it's not ACOs are not just government, not just Medicare, Medicaid. There's also ACOs in the commercial space, less regulated, more of a cowboy mentality of anything goes in terms of the contracting terms that could be negotiated between a payer, a provider, hospital physician, continuing care, conti uh, the, the long-term post-acute care space. So at the beginning, I'm quoting from this article, Beyond ACOs, the health push and technology pull for accountable care and prevention organizations, which you supplied by bionews-text.com, reads at the beginning of 2015, 
there were 744 ACOs, including Medicare and Medicaid ACOs, as well as commercial ACOs serving global corporations like Boeing and Intel. ACO growth is continuing with 89 new organizations planning to enter the market in 2015. Moreover, CMS has the ambitious goal of having 50% of Medicare payments provided through ACOs and other alternative payment models by 2018, which is what we talked about. So even again, even with all the criticism against this can't work, fundamentally flawed, too little, too late, light or conflicting incentives, like you said, trains leaving the station. People want to be part of this thing because they ain't going back. Yeah, and I think the Intel and Boeing examples are interesting because what you're seeing there, at least I know in some of the things I've read on Boeing or Intel's programs, they've really thought these things through, worked with the provider community. Obviously, in Boeing's case, you know, you have a lot of workforce up in Seattle, a fairly sophisticated healthcare system. That whole West Coast has sort of been much further along in terms of risk management and accepting value-based or risk-based contracts than we've seen in other parts of the country. And I think they melded that. I know that in Intel's case, I, I read a, quite a bit that they that their IT departments were helping them and their process departments and risk and improvement departments were helping the hospitals think through how to better manage their systems internally, how to better operate their systems. So there was this partnership and I think you will see some results out of that combining fairly sophisticated healthcare systems with very um, well-educated purchasing groups um, that really want to make a difference for their own employees and understand the, the data and what can be done with that data to improve the health of populations. So it'll be interesting to watch those over the coming years, but some, some are certainly going to be successful, just like we're seeing with some um, providers who have moved to full risk and they're doing it. And the question is, can we expand that out broadly enough to, to turn the Titanic, as you say, to move the healthcare system to a better place? Right. So there's there's lots of discovery here. We're going to have a rather eclectic uh, swath of opinion and approaches and results as we work through this month. Actually, we're teeing off the physician-led ACO piece next week with our friend, Dr. Farzad Mastashari, former ONC coordinator for health IT, now the founding executive and CEO with support from Venrock and others of an uh, ACO management company called Alidaid. And they focus on, you know, the onesie twosie, small group docs, getting them involved in building uh, physician-led ACO. So we'll hear from him. But before I do, back on this uh, retail thing and uh, some of the big players, not blowing in, um, in Intel, but Walmart had a bit of a what are faux entree, if you will, and prompt retraction from the uh, ACO space back in 2011. And I understand that you have a bit of uh, inside stuff you can throw at it. So tell us a little bit about uh, what happened back in 2011 and uh, what implications or tea leaves that pretends from your point. Yeah, I think, yeah, as you'll recall, that uh, Walmart put out this RFI to create a primary care network. And uh, that RFI obviously uh, gathered quite a bit of attention and quite a bit of pushback in particular from physician groups. And uh, Walmart rescinded the RFI and said they'd overstretched and overspoken and this and that. And, 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 they, and they pulled it back. But I, I believe Walmart's still interested in how do they create viable systems 
that they themselves would own the healthcare space. Obviously, it's a large component of the economy, and uh, there are opportunities there. We've seen the, the some of the unique things they did with the generic drug offerings that made it very worthwhile to go to a Walmart and get your prescriptions filled that were then matched by others. And we've seen also clinics and other attempts at things around healthcare in there. I don't think we've heard the last word from Walmart in this space. And at some point, as we, if you think about it from an Intel or Boeing perspective, where they brought some of their unique data analytics expertise to it, it may not be half bad to get some of Walmart's supply chain folks looking at the healthcare chain and saying, can we help you to fix that? So I think there's some potential expertise there as well. And we'll have to wait and see if Walmart slowly or quietly moves into this space versus the big RFI that came out previously. And that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank my colleague, Fred Goldstein, for his time and insights today. Do follow both of us on Twitter by at 2HealthGuru and at FSGoldstein and on the web at www.pophealthweek.com and acowatch.com. We do this weekly at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. Join us next week for the continuation of our deep dive series into population health and ACOs, featuring executives from physician-led, hospital-sponsored, and health plan-enabled ACOs. Our physician-led segment kicks off with Farzad Mastashari, MD, the co-founder and CEO of ACO management company, Alidaid. Until then, for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. (laughs) 